Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Jaina, head of growth at SaaS Group, a serial acquirer buying wonderful SaaS businesses to take them to the next level. And here I chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Rafael, co-founder and CEO of Wistrust, a multi-channel distribution platform built to simplify internal and external communications. And that sounds incredible, but also a tad vague. So I really want to uh, get into it and like, um, yeah, see what you guys are really doing and how you're doing it. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, sure. And I'm going to try to be less vague. <laughs> yes, nice thank you. Yes. Um, so I'm Raphael. Uh, I'm currently living in Amsterdam because I know you travel a lot with your podcast. Yep. Um, uh, the company is a um, European company based in Paris. Um, it's called Wistrust. We have two products. Uh, the first one was Wistrust PR. So it's a software SaaS solution for PR, which is uh, public relation and IR, investor relation professionals. And to make it very short for the SaaS viewers, it's upspot for the communication people. Because we okay. do everything from the front end, which in Upspot is the blog, but for us, it's going to be the newsroom. We do the channel distribution, uh, multi-channel distribution, email, API, social networks, um, internal social networks, everything that are where our clients need to distribute their content. We have an integrated CRM that we try to call IRM because it was influencer relationship management, but in French, it also means the big machine where you get scanned if you have a, a health issue. So we decided not to. <laughs> so it's actually a CRM for, for media. Uh, and last break, uh, all the analytics and data uh, monitoring um, where the, our clients can connect the, the work they've done with the results they get out there in terms of uh, investor coverage, press coverage, all these uh, results because it used to be a lot of various software that were not integrated. So we, we tend to say that Wistrust PR is the control tower. You plug your stream and you make the, the, the planes land and fly, uh, and you have everything uh, centered around one uh, database. Uh, we, we target mainly enterprise company, so very large scale. Uh, we operate in 66 countries based from Paris because our clients usually do PR and investor relation worldwide. And the second product, but we'll discuss it further, it's called Wistrust Product Protect. It's a software solution based on the blockchain to authentify the press release. It's an add-on that we've created four years ago based on the growing issue of fake news and fake content. And it's easy to say now because always like four years ago, too early, now uh, that Davos has said that misinformation is the main risk for civilization above climate change, we do think that there is a, a clear uh, value proposition for our client and we see more adoption uh, recently. Oh, is definitely. it less big? It is, it is perfect. Thank you so much. And I, I kind of agree with that uh, last bit that you just said, because like you mentioned, well, I don't necessarily travel with the podcast, but I do travel and I am 
so surprised every time you know you you turn on the news and in every country uh it's a different aspect of the same piece of news or like it's it's a different light on it and it's just so fascinating uh and also a little bit scary so i definitely think that that you guys have a bit of a we have point a topic here. That yeah. yeah, we're we're just gonna be on the enterprise aspect. Unfortunately, I would like that we try to help even more because the subject is also a society issue. But um, that's where we have the software. That's where we have the clients. So that's where we grew our solution. But there's a lot of other company trying to address that, and I think we're not enough in terms of numbers. Um, it should be there should be more investment. There should be more money flowing to that subject because. Um, I was reading um, an editorial like yesterday saying that we used to say seen on TV was a proof of a lot. Seen on TV or read somewhere is a proof of nothing anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and I think for making, for working together, uh, div uh, building cities, making society, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be tricky if we cannot trust our own eyes. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, problem to solve. So I am even more excited now to see how you guys are doing this. Um, but yeah, so first of all, you know, how did you get here in the first place? Like, what is your background? What was inspiration behind both products? Um, so first product was really, and it's, I think it's a lot of SaaS software based on what I've listened to podcasts. My uh, partner, Jérôme, was uh, leading one of the largest PR uh, company agency. So he was on a services business side and they were struggling with software. He's, he's, he's uh, interested in technology and he was definitely saying that what was offered as tools for his employee was lagging behind what was possible for sales for other uh, verticals was the, where the SaaS actually was already not mature, but big enough. Um, so that was 10 years ago. Um, so the, that's how we, we met through uh, Business Angel. We were both Business Angel in, uh, in one uh, a group of, of founders in Paris, amazing, uh, called 50 Partners. If you have time, look at it, they're amazing. Um, and so we discussed at uh, the uh, Christmas dinner and he told me his story and I was working in media. I spent all my life of work in the media industry and that clicked. It was like, okay, I can get rid of the uh, advertising part. I get subscription, I get large enterprise, but I stay in the business side, uh, I stay in the media side. So that makes sense. Um, so I start thinking about this problem as like, okay, where do we start? What is the first basis? And I did a metaphor uh, and a comparison using HubSpot, but that was already like, SaaS for sales was already strong. Uh, you had like newcomers like Pipedrive. So we, have a, we had a lot to study. So that's what we did. We just studied what they've done for sales and trying to transfer that in, into what it means for media relation. Because there's one thing you don't, there's not a, a beginning and an end to an investor or media relation uh, because you just keep it for as long as the person worked for the media. And sometimes you give them content, it's, it's not getting any results, it doesn't transform into article, but you build that relation. So it was an open-ended 
relation with all the person in the CRM. So it changes, it seems simple, but it's changing a lot of stuff in the way you do that. And of course, uh, you're not sending as much uh, email or cold calling. There's always content that drive first. So instead of being like the workforce, it's more the content driving the, the operation. So that, that's how we started. And I was about to say, very simple, one person, one business, seeing software is not doing enough, and then working on something that end up to be uh, uh, quite successful. We are now uh, leading um, software provider for, for France and uh, a bit more broadly in Europe for uh, our focus, which is listed and enterprise uh, global scale company. Right. Okay. That's fascinating. But, uh, well, as far as I understand, right, from, from what you just told me, you started from enterprise from the very beginning. And a lot of companies, yes. a lot of founders are a little bit afraid of that because you may end up just, you know, becoming a feature at a, at a really big company uh, or, you know, not being able to then move to a broader market and like maybe introducing product-led growth into your motion. Was that ever an issue? Is it an issue now? Or, you know, you have this niche and like you said, you're leading um, this particular vertical uh, in France and broader because, um, well, your clients work uh, globally. Um, so yeah, how are you addressing that if, you know, it's, if a, it's, it's ever a question? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And I, and I think the one thing that uh, created our drive and market and strategic analysis at the beginning was that uh, the reason why there was no or not much vertical software for PR and IR was the size of the team and the amount of the budget. If you have a tiny company, usually cons are done by marketing, social, the CEO, uh, it's always like it's not the first person you hire, except if you're in a lobbying type of industry where you need to move the politics and a lot of stuff. But if, if you're not in that space, usually comes are not well equipped. So for us, um, we had ambition, which I think it's required when you want to go attack a problem of one industry globally. Um, so we had ambition and we thought from the start, okay, um, let, where where can we have large clients. So it's not just how we can grow to large clients. It's like, and then we realized that they were only the only one that were ready to pay what was needed. And then there's one thing over the last 10 years that I've learned is that when we started, uh, you had shadow SaaS buying, like any business unit could buy SaaS without the IT knowing, like just putting credit card, getting through everything. It's impossible at large companies and it became even more difficult because the compliance, the security. So it became part of the product. And it also became one of the reasons why they can select us because we go through screening of all our clients. Uh, we have raised the bar on every subject that matters to them. Um, and we've developed, so going back to incremental growth, we've developed products that fit these guys and we tend to be very integrated. When I look at my largest clients, we tend to um, be integrated with their website, their social network. Uh, when we have the press clipping, we can distribute that to their, um, for example, we have one client who has a, an app for the top management 
um, the best clippings, the best results, they flow directly into that app for the top managements to see what is the press coverage of the company. So when you arrive to that phase of being kind of an ERP, you're completely integrated into the workflow of the company. So you're not a feature at all. You become a hub for the media investor relation content to flows into the different softwares. And I think that's what kept us on the track of this enterprise approach because it was, we saw it was sticky. It was enabling us to get big clients and it was also a differentiator in terms of the effort that we had to put into compliance. So um, I do reckon that the first two years, I wanted to go smaller. <laughs> and that was my partner who actually said, no, let's keep it. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to be more rewarding and we have more chance. And it was completely correct. And I'm happy we stick to it despite the difficulty. And I, I think if you can make a case for enterprise, at the beginning of your company, you just grew stronger. You directly train for the marathon and not the 10K. So of course, if you start by training for that, you feel at ease when the smaller clients get in. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was actually my, my next question. Like how uh, did it affect your roadmap and how did it affect, you know, the whole like architecture of the product and the security and the, the compliances that uh, you had to go through? So you had it, it drove all built everything. in. Yeah, it drove everything. And, uh, and again, that's that we, there was some drawback to that. It's not like mm -hmm. paradise because the big clients tend to have very high needs. They tend to have very specific choice of architecture. So you have to provide a solution without getting sidetracked one pass of one technological pass and not being able to serve the others. That's where API and microservices or we find a good solution because you put a layer in between you and the big client and that layer is more um, flexible for the others. So um, to, to, to answer properly, uh, it drives the roadmap based on the biggest client, biggest growth we could get. There's of course some, we of course made a lot of mistakes <laughs> by doing this, of course. Uh, we end up with that uh, API microservices approach for each new connectors that we develop that enables us to work with the clients better, but also, and that's a very interesting side effect of that ERP approach, we are connected to the largest international players for content because of that. For example, we don't do monitoring by themselves, which is checking what is said about your company around the world, but we have connectors to bringing the content from the five biggest companies and compared to them, we're a tiny player. But because we are, we had amazing client, we had blue chip client, we had the L'Oreal, the Schneider Electric, the Elikid, the total of the world, they were, they were kind of required to develop that thing with us because they cannot cut their biggest client from the solution and the integration they, they, they're asking. So, the good side, there, so the drawbacks, bugs, complexity. Uh, the good side is the blue chip clients also enables you to reach level because of their name, not yours, that you wouldn't be able to reach without. And being really focused on that honestly enables us to um, do partnership with Cision, Metwater, 
uh, Euronext, we, we, again, like the largest brand in our sector. And, and that's, uh, that's very nice when we don't have a name and you yeah. try to make one for yourself. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's a great strategy. And I think like we just had uh, another episode with, with another founder and uh, we talked about the fact that, yeah, it's very, very important to like decide on the niche and decide what you're going to be and what you're going to build. But it's also really important to focus on what you're not going to do. And in your case, it's going after smaller teams where maybe it's not really necessary to have a, a product like yours. So I think that's great. Uh, I think it would have worked, mm -hmm. but it would have drive us to, to not at all the feature that made us an ERP completely integrated with our clients. We would have focused on engagement, KPIs, mm -hmm. uh, rate of return, instead of focusing on making their life simpler into a very large and complex entity. And I think, again, it's, it's, there's business there. We have competitors. Um, there's a great competitor who has been bought by SEM Rush called Proly. They're working with agency, tiny client. I think what they do is great. But then they have not developed what is very costly to us, but makes us special. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, that said, you know, it, it's very costly to develop a product like yours. And I know that you're VC backed, right? Uh, and did you decide on that again from the very beginning? So how uh, was the whole process structured there? Uh, were there any drawbacks? Like you said, like, for example, the, uh, the new product four years ago might have been a bit too early, right? What yes. about 10 years ago? Were there any concerns that this is something that will make enterprise life a little bit easier for PR? I think it was not too early because SAS was it in the world. Uh, companies like Box, like I mean, when you when you read what was there in 20, 2014, it was like dominant play. There were no actually any real bets except how you're going to succeed in enterprise. Uh, but the, the idea of there's one C-level guy that has not SaaS software was self-explanatory to VC. Then there was the question of the size. There, there was a lot of other questions. But like that idea of doing a software for that C guy who has no software was, okay, let's discuss. And then they had object, objection. And the, but that, that, that I think the door opener what was at the time quite easy because we were late in the SaaS industry for comms. So we're not preaching for new ideas. We're really just adjust, uh, adjusting that idea. Um, a second software solution, it was a bit fancy, blockchain, like again, but we, we had raised money at the time. So we didn't really use the extra juice of the uh, keywords <laughs> to, uh, to raise the money. Um, so, was it decided from the side from the start? Yes, uh, because of the cost. And uh, I've done a, a startups in 26 uh, mass algorithm, a recommendation algorithm. Um, and the cost of building and running on infrastructure was really high. We knew that was lower, but we knew that because it was enterprise, the skills level and the volume of development would be high. So we know that it was not the technical aspect, but more the human resources that we had to put in front of that problem that would require us for us, for us to raise money. So we knew that, but we only do one round. 
Uh, and that one run was when the product was uh, already partially successful and it was to grow uh, abroad. So that idea of the finances was continue building the product, but mainly uh, grew higher and continue to expand the impact and of the software and the client base. This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com course rewardful.com slash course and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. That makes sense. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the expansion, right? Uh, You said that you're very established in France and with the companies that work globally and internationally. Uh, But um, you've also tried to go US, right? You, you wanted yes. to really tackle <laughs> the big guys. So um, I know there is a fascinating story there and you moved to the US eventually to uh, help this expansion. So could you talk a little bit about that and like what it taught you and uh, why it wasn't really a, a fairy tale at the end? Uh, but yeah, uh, how, how did it work for you? I would qualify it as a failure, so even even like more bluntly. And I think that's always in case of entrepreneurship, that's what really matters. It's like those stories because it's easy to tell the winner story. It's harder to tell the loser story. And also it's more interesting in terms of what you gain. So what we did was quite easy. We've managed to tackle large, the largest company we had in our country. We're work on listed company. So the play was just shortcutting everything. And so if we grab the same clients in New York on the, on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, we're done. We're, we're, we will have the proof that this works and this is scalable. And then the hard work will start, which is deployment, execution, growing. So I'm not saying that that play was to make it everything simple. But we knew we would prove much more. We would be able to raise much more and we would have a, a success business case above the uh, a few millions um, RR that we, we had. So that was really the game. Um, so that I moved to New York with my family in 2018. At the time, perfect timing, everything good. Everything is growing fine. The economy is well. Um, it's very difficult um, to uh, and very interesting because we were about 25 people. So in terms of size of company, um, you're taking one of the founder very early 
to try to uh, trailblaze a shortcut with the idea that it will get you somewhere uh, nice. Um, so what happened is I started um, SaaS level between Europe and that was a, I was ready for that, but the expectation in terms of enterprise was already a lot higher than what I expected. And because of, because of what? Because of the shadow SaaS buying. Shadow SaaS buying was still happening in large enterprise in Europe. It was done in the US. So what happened is like my lens of sales moved from six months to a year and a half. And I had not expected that. 2018, you take your six-month sales. You have a few uh, lower market sales because we were entering the market. So we sold to smaller company. Um, we had great clients. We worked for a, a county, um, the um, uh, employment agency of Philadelphia consulting um, firm. So we had a first, we had a first client, but they were not the uh, Apple or uh, Amex of the world. They were this great American company, and it was I learned how to do business with the U.S. through these clients, gaining them and working with them. So you take my 18 months of sales time now, and then you arrived mid 20, beginning of 2020, and then there's COVID. And so these two things for us really killed the, the shortcut idea. It was we didn't evaluate right the lens of the sales process because of that change in culture in the shadow IT buying, and then the COVID hit. And we had one uh, profitable company. If you take out the business of growing in the U.S., which was the bet. So we just decided to stop and uh, keep uh, LC growing profitable SaaS software company in Europe. And so in a sense, that's what I say was a failure. We learned a lot. I think we increased our marketing game by like threefold because like when you have one of the founder trained in the US market, you realize how bad you are. It's in a, a good camp. Way. But you, yeah, it's a boot camp. like, oh my God. And the other thing that I'm, so to also give a bit of nice feeling to that tough experience, um, there's two things. Going back with my family back and forth in 18, 20 months was really harsh because you take the kids, you move them, then you move them again. It was, so honestly, there's, there's a toll for that try. It also, for the company, there's more win. We completely switched to English. We changed our culture of company. Um, it was great. I mean, like the bet still has a great impact now. We are 35 people and we speak 13 languages. And that's something that came of my profound mix of uh, business approach in the US. And I wanted to bring back to the company. And I'm quite happy with that. And on the fun part, one and just to, to give you one short funny story, I went with, we hired a sales guy in the US, Matt, really a, amazing guy. Um, and we were going to meeting and I came at the meeting and I was really happy. And he looked at me and said, you oh, know, it was a crappy meeting. I was like, why? And then he explained me why. And I went to meetings and was like, ah, it didn't happen well. And the guy was, no, it's amazing. He actually brought back to the elevator and say, see you again. We're good. It was like, what do you mean? It's like politeness. 
no, 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 it's good. And like everything was, was like that for me. It was like, okay, my brain is thinking A, the guy who understands tells me it's B. And that really is, makes you really humble. And it's really fun, not every day, but in the end, it's really fun to see how bad you are at reading signs. And I, I often say that going in the US is as strange, like you should think of it in terms of sales as a change as big as if you were thinking India or China. But because of culture, you feel really at ease with them. You know everything, it's TV, it's movies, it's everything. But then you realize that all the signs, you read it the wrong way. Yeah, you had your cross-cultural communication one-on-one. <laughs> Bootcamp style. Yes, that's true. Well, I'm glad, you know, you came out, uh, you know, still smiling and thinking that this was a good experience and it brought uh, so much good for the company, which is great, obviously. Um, but you started talking about, you know, sales cycles and, and sales motion and, you know, how... Um, yeah, how, how difficult it is and how it has changed um, over the last several years. So what is it now? Uh, are you still winning the new clients solely um, depending on your sales team? Like what are the dynamics there? What is your sales cycle right now? Is it changing back to six months since you're back in France or what is happening? So I'm actually not back in France because I moved. Right, I, I didn't sorry. Want to move back to France. No, that's okay. Don't worry. And I think it was part of that cultural shift and try to keep it, keep us as European approach, as still grow in an international mindset because it was a shift for the company and I didn't want to go back. Um, to to go to your question and I think it's a it's a good one. Um, so sales cycle. I must say that over the last three years for enterprise and I've discussed it with other founders and it seems that they had like not the same path but kind of the same challenge the cycles change a lot covid ukraine and the israelian war if you work at global scale their danger they challenge the investment of larger company the decision process i think we don't have like a straight one year where we have a cycle that is stable and it's difficult to plan so I think we've, we've moved from a very structured, gross, predictable place to a very more challenging, um, unpredictable, uh, but still there's business there. So it's not bad at all. But I think in terms of, uh, of, of the pipe uh, sales prediction of HubSpot, they've, they've always been wrong the last three years up and down, but they are not correct anymore. So that's my take is that I don't believe in sales cycle as, um, or at least with the volume we have. And maybe if we had like 10X the volume, that, that change would be smaller. Um, but I feel it's getting better. Um, I feel the process for uh, changing the shadow IT uh, buying in Europe is done. So the process go back for every company. They have like a process in place. So you know that you start from the beginning, you streamline it and it's, it's, it's getting where it should be. Um, if I was to start a new SaaS software, I would put like the compliance and security a lot more higher in my roadmap and investment because it has a huge impact on sales. 
uh, or at least the time between your clients agrees and sign, I find that legal was the delay before. Now it's compliance and security. So there's like these second stakeholders inside the sales process is taking a lot more space and a lot more time. The faster you manage it, the better you're at it, the, the, the quicker your sales process uh, become. One thing that we did though to improve that is we relied a lot on extension of existing client. So subsidiaries, other country, because you've done it already. So then you got just the sales process, but the contract and the security and the compliance is done. So extension has been a growing part of our new customer acquisition targeting because we were getting a more stable growth there, more predictable. That's really interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thanks for, for sharing that. One thing that uh, we also discussed with the company that from day one focused on uh, enterprise enterprise customers, what they shared was really fascinating. I really want to to know your opinion about that. They said uh, whenever it was like a really big customer, uh, one thing that really moved the needle and like really helped the uh, you know growing the relationships was actually meeting with the people, actually meeting with the you know the, the decision makers. So they would expect people not to just show up in, in Zoom, but to actually show up in the office. So like more like personal communication is really valued when you're going after really big enterprise clients. Is that the same for you? Because I, I feel like PR could be somewhere there as well. I, I completely agree. Uh, we used to do that a lot. We used to, I used to look at my time spent in Uber uh, pre uh, 2020, and it would I would count it would count in days over the year. I would spend days, like literally 24 hours round of amount of time. Like I would spend five seven days in the Uber. So the reason was going and see them. So I so something broke, and I think that also has an impact on the sales cycle for large enterprise. The reason being for me is that they commit. They know that when they commit, it's going to keep longer for them to uncommit. So it means that the, if the provider is not good, they're going to have a bad provider for a longer time than a smaller company. So even if they don't actually say it loud, I do. they have the experience and they know that their commitment requires a high standard. So if you fail, uh, there, so there is less chance that you fail and become a bad provider. So we try to do as much as you can in terms of moving. Um, I do also see that in the upsell. Uh, we uh, have complex problems. We do some a lot of upsells. Uh, there's a correlation for us between meeting the clients and the users and the capacity to do upsells the next quarter. Like, And the correlation is not, oh, we do 20%. It's double the amount of upsell we're able to do when we've met them um, in, in person and we sat down and we do like, okay, what is good? What is bad? What can be improved? Then business is, 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 is a lot stronger. So yeah, take your, um, take back the car, take back the train, avoid <laughs> the plane if you can for yeah. obvious second threat to humanity reason. Uh, but yeah, go see them and spend time with them. And um, when I travel to Paris, I, I try to book at least uh, two to three clients and a bit of PR. 
that's the human relation and that's also part of our industry but that's where spending time face to face uh, is important i would have loved to sat down in a in a studio with you anna i know yes. it's not possible and i would love still to travel but it's a bit far for me but yeah i think it, yeah. it's i think they're all right and it's it's a better life with people face to face it's more interesting it makes like days better i feel that's true that's true we may be minutes. traveling to paris for b2b Ooh. rocks in in autumn so you know there is your chance if you're there i'll definitely do another one <laughs> yeah live cool live yeah for sure uh okay so uh i have a few more questions uh you know since you're back from the us uh you chose this kind of like more sustainable growth path right and we we talked about it before uh doing this podcast and i really loved how you put it um adventure over money it may not be you know billions if you were you know, to, to book a client in New York or several clients or whatever. Um, but it's still fascinating for you. It's still, you know, going after new clients and subsidiaries and exploring new markets. So how did you come to this my more mindful approach to business? Um, traumatized, tra how you say that, a traumatism? Like, uh, no, uh, <laughs> to honestly. trauma? Yeah. Oh. Trauma, free trauma. Okay. Um, uh, two stories. Uh, so New York is an amazing city. Just like you walk down the street, you feel you're in a movie. It gives you that vibes of power, energy. People come. I mean, like it's it's brilliant, but it's also terrifying. And and when you're in between success and failure. It's really interesting to look also at the guy who do your trash in the morning to grab the can to have to do a living. So there's these two things who doesn't make sense. You go down and you meet Spike Lee shooting a movie in your own street. And then at the same time, the same morning, there is this guy who to make seven bucks is going to go through your trash trying to, to find the can. And so uh, I say trauma to, to make it fun, but like there's, for me, New York is, there's a challenge for every mind that is conscious, um, or at least that's how I feel. And it was really difficult. So in a sense, when we had to turn it down for, um, because I want to pay 35 people, I care about them. I want to have a sustainable business. I had to have a sustainable business for my investors. So all this is in between choice and obligation. But when you do that, you still have some room to decide how. And that's where the decision, or at least for me, and the break of the COVID, the close down, trying to solve all these issues that we have to solve and we don't want to steer the mud again. You, Everyone remembers. Um, but then it become to, okay, I actually have rooms to decide how I can lead that. And you said meeting people, um, it can be a big client or a small client relation are nearly the same. Where you get in terms of human relation, nearly the same thing. Um, so we've decided to, we were, I think it was, it was there already as the company, but we turned to be more international, more 
sustainable. We are uh, in the process of becoming a B Corp. Um, and we were also trying to fit a growth path that wouldn't overconsume resources. And I think like over the last months, this strategy has killed so many great projects that it's now really easy to say, look, so, but at the time, I think I was already very aware of that, like doing a B round meant going to a certain path and we were about to be uh, uh, break, uh, break even. So I was like, okay, we have that choice. Let's, let's make it uh, something that matters to the team like, and let's turn that, that difficult challenge and the shortcut that didn't work actually was a dead, dead end. So we, we got back and said, okay, now we have, we have the, the path. We're going to avoid shortcuts and we're going to do it proper and we're going to enjoy the walk. And that's where adventure becomes part of the, that idea is that um, you try to bring people together. Um, and there's some stuff strange happening. We have now three Colombians in our team. I cannot explain why Colombian people are amazing. They're like the best coworker you can have. And they're 10% of our workforce. And that doesn't make sense, but we're really happy with it. And I think all this, you add them these little things and it becomes very lively. And I think we, yeah, we're happy where we are, um, despite the fact that it was not uh, straightforward. So if you can avoid the trauma to get there, I think it's better. Sometimes we need a bit of a slap in the face to move faster and make stronger decisions. Right. Okay. That was very honest. Thank you. So, uh, a little bit more maybe on, the, on that point, right? Uh, and again, something that we discussed even before the podcast and something that comes up a lot during episodes lately, 2023 has been super turbulent uh, and um, founder burnout has been like really there in the discussions for quite a while. I mean, we've done, I think we've done two AMAs about founder burnout and, and, and fighting it. And we're going to, to have another one about like healthy, high performance, um, which is, you know, a lot of people want to want to do that. Um, so yeah, how for you personally, how do you overcome this? I mean, now you've got a great team, you're profitable, uh, you're growing, uh, there's a lot more challenges and opportunities for you guys. Uh, how is it for you personally? How do you grow as a CEO, as a leader yeah. and bring those amazing people together? In a sense, I'm lucky. I've done it before everyone else because it happened also during New York. I was back and forth every three to four weeks from Paris to New York. So you're jet lagged like nearly all the time. Uh, and then COVID hit and you have like to uh, furlough all the team. I actually, because I didn't tell that story, but I actually booked flight ticket for the French people but they were not already in lockdown when I came and moved my family. It was the 14th of March. They went into lockdown on the 17th. So I like, and then my plane ticket and they looked at me like, okay, the bus went bananas. The bus is just like, it's, it's, yeah, that's done. He has his breakdown. Okay, we're gonna pat him in the back, let him go back to France and wait a week and we'll see. And a week after they were all taking the tickets back to fly because they were okay we're we're stuck um so that that time was difficult for me because i was it was good to be in advance but it was also difficult with um uh, work relation 
a friend's relation that we had to left behind that they didn't really enjoy that we were actually right in a sense because it was not fun to be right at that time i'd rather have been wrong um so for me um part of the solution was amsterdam and okay. again we talked the challenge of new york i think like where and how you live is a big chunk of balance and it like the capacity to bring my kids to school by biking 34 35 40 minutes every morning listen to a podcast when the, so listening to them when i go and listening to a peaceful podcast when i come back is actually just that the morning routine um the pace of life like moving from a very strong pace very long distance towards I mean that, and and the the views on work in the Netherlands is particularly interesting, and I think I've also grew of that. So I'm not saying you have to uproot yourself and change country to progress, but because it's obviously not easy. But I don't have any more than saying that for me, the change of countries and the deliberate decision of okay, the place as I live has a huge impact on on the quality, and it doesn't make work less. That's the strange thing. I don't. I, I don't actually work less. I work a bit different in terms of of hours because sun goes down really early. So you eat with your kids really early, but you go back to work. So it's really just like equilibrium. And I think, yeah, it was interesting to see the impact of cities and the rhythm and the culture on your own thing. And it, for me, it's more that than the work I did on myself that actually. Uh, create that that interesting balance but i would That's recommend changing settings to challenge your own belief and so if you move away for a month and i know a lot of ceos that now do that because it's possible move away for a month and see what you like and you don't like in your current balance and see if it reveals some change that needs to be done Right, absolutely. You know, we have a, and maybe maybe they're the, the same in French or or even in English, uh, but in Russian we have a saying that goes, "Wherever you go, you take yourself with you." So I think that's a really really good advice in terms of moving places would help you have a fresh look at what you do, but also a very fresh look and a very realistic one on yourself because then uh being in a new setting would actually give you a good perspective of what you took with you what of your you know personal traits and what you are so that's uh that's a really good one i don't think it's for everyone but um should definitely try no of course but you can try wood once at least it's less engaging um i would have to say Uh, because I I love Amsterdam, I love the Netherlands. There's like I can talk hours because I've studied a lot there, here. But there's one also good thing is that the Dutch they have their own uh, work-life balance that is good. It's more Nordic system. And when you explain, so when you explain a challenge in the U.S., they're like, "Yeah, but great, go on, build it." It's gonna, you know, like this superhero. Hero, uh, you eat the bad fruit, but you're gonna get stronger. You're gonna. So if you complain or if you have a challenge, the only answer you can get is, "Yeah, but you." Okay, that 
You go in the Netherlands and you complain as a French that I am saying, oh, yeah, it's very annoying. I have this and this and that. And they look at you and they're like, why? Why do you bother? And you're like, okay, he's actually right. Why am I having, even complaining? Just I'm going to go back and change it. And so they're really blunt. And they really actually don't take too much of empathy on this type of stuff. And they're the opposite of the American who will serve you the same approach. And also it was when you say, and I like the expression, when you say it's a very uh, honest feedback on the Dutch help, the Dutch people help a lot on that. They're not like, a, because they're just will give you back in the face and yeah, very efficient slap. You do that in the morning. You're like, okay, yeah, I'm not, there's, a, there's actually no reason. Okay. I'm going to change it. And, um, and it's uh, in French, you will complain with the other. It would be par part of socializing in the U.S. You would work the great. There's like every culture has its way of, uh, of seeing the problems. And I do think that um, the Dutch one is quite interesting because it, it's the idea of, okay, if you have a problem, just fix it and fix it with the rest of the community because we actually don't want to hear about and there's always a solution. It may take time, but that's your own problem. So that's your own solution to find. And you're not, you're alone with it. So you just start digging and building bikes. That's what they do. Right. Super. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I truly think it's a good advice. Okay. So two more questions about the usual stuff. So we talked about the biggest value, right? Let's keep us as and the expansion as the failure and not go there uh, again what has been the biggest success so far i think we've opened with it i think it's being right on the wistrust product and finding something that for example that, that this is a saas software that that came into being a part of our b corp process because we're helping society And I would not have thought that I would do something where, so I'm not saying it with its grandiose uh, thing, but we're helping the economy works. We're helping uh, to avoid defraud people. So this is useful. Not, not like I'm not saving the world, but when I started software, SaaS software, usually you look at the people who have impact, who do a lot more. And you're like sometimes on, on being like conscious and like, oh, I would, I wish I would do that. And that product actually, and again, maybe it's part of the journey of becoming more sustainable, more useful. I, we're really proud of it uh, because we really address one issue that, that was uh, at the time tiny, that grow. And is we talked about Thomas Daquin, uh, don't believe what you see, or I believe what I see, which is not possible now, but we There, like, there's definitely some work to be done. There's definitely some um, teaching to be done. We have to educate people about the issue. Uh, I look at my kids and I look at my mother. The both of them, they're gonna be challenged by this. And me, I am digging into it like daily. And I'm sometimes I'm feeling excited. I'm feeling scared, but I have I, I have a duty to still work on on that for them. And I think it's it's a success. Yeah, it's a, a internal driver to do more and try to push more. So I think it's it's the good one. I think that's a, and my team, honestly, the 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 international setting teams, the the working together, the balance between being in the office and being remote. I think we've also decided not to become a remote company. 
very painfully because we like meeting people. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm happy to that they like it. I think we get that feedback and it's not just one day, like everyone meeting in the office every week and it's part of being who, who we are. So yeah, we stress product as, because it has impact and people because I like them. <laughs> and they have impact on you. <laughs> All right. Yes. That's great. And of course, uh, the last question is always about hack. And I know that you have a wonderful customer success hack. So can you share it? Yeah. So yeah, they, that's, I understand what you put in in the end. So people stay focused and wait yes. <laughs> and they listen to me better. So my hack is the following. Um, I, I love hospitality. I love food. I love hotel. I love what it comes with it. Um, the pleasure of being in a nice place. And so we've structured our CS team to work as a Cledor. I don't know if you know what Cledor is, Anna. Cledor is the yeah. guy in very fancy French hotel who has the key to the city. He's the guy who is able to solve anything, find anything, make your life amazing. So he has that key, golden key, like the golden ticket in, uh, in um, Wonka. We've tried with tiny things to work that way with our clients. And so it becomes really uh, clear what it means because it's, again, a bit vague for now, but I'm going to try to make it clear. We tend to interact with our clients in an unexpected way at unexpected time, but with a lot of, of feeling. For example, one of our huge success was Saint Valentin. We send a big box with one heart flying balloon that popped up when you opened the box to all our That's clients. And just it stays on in their office. No, not like no promotional, no branding of with trust inside, just that one tiny detail at an unexpected time where it used to be personal, but we make it fun and professional. And it stays on for months. And we still had like four months after, like sadly clients sending, oh, the balloon is down and sending the balloon on the floor. So um, when they leave for another job, we send them a tiny car to wish them a good road. And we could say a lot and blah, blah, blah. But just like we try to make these things where it was actually a human relation. We cannot make it very personal, but we try to be there um, at those times. And that, and I'm not going to give you all the recipe because I have, we've, over, the, over the 10 years, we've built that. But uh, we've seen the impact. It's very not costly, honestly. Um, and it also helps a lot my CS team to feel connected to them. And I think the service that you gave when you feel connected to people is a lot stronger. So when they start being aware of a burst, it's not the user is not there for four months. We 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 have one tiny rabbit, a, a plush that we that we have that we send. Um, and so it's, again, there's no, we're below the amount of money you're allowed to spend for a customer. It's very proper. There's no, but you care. And this 
has helped us in business doing upsell. Uh, when it's tough because the product has issues, it helped us go through these issues with them because we have built that relation and come back to meet people, see people, and in the enterprise aspect, build this relation. And there's a way to build them that is like, I have so many uh, ads with branding on it that I don't really care about. I have really few stuff where I was like, oh, that is good. And that is like not money spent. It's not about the money. It's not a bottle of champagne. It's just like, oh, they care. And for me, that act, we've done years without it. For example, during COVID, it was impossible to send, to send stuff to the office. And we saw the impact on the NPS. So it's not an act that is just a belief. I have mathematical proof on the FPS between the correlation of that Cledor approach and the results. And honestly, even if you don't do it for the NPS, do it because it's nice. Like that floating balloon going down four months after that ends up on a tweet of a large corporation because the comms team has the Twitter account and just want to do something fun is, is, is good for everyone. Yeah. Okay. That's a beautiful hack. I mean, it's not even a hack. It's just, uh, you know, it's just remembering that we're all people and we are in it for, a, you know, good run, hopefully. Uh, and that even in business, you want to keep the relationships good. Right? But it's also to... a hack because it has a positive impact. So even if you it's... don't believe in it, you can <laughs> use it as a hack. I won't be offended. I think it has been enough beneficial beneficial uh, aspect to it. So I'm happy that people try, even if they don't believe in it, at least maybe the other side will feel it. So, so yeah, efficient act and more than an act if you want. I'm happy to see it that way. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing it. And, you know, thanks for sharing the story. Uh, I mean, we talked uh, even before the, the, the podcast and I knew a little bit, but the way you talked uh, today really brought more light to what you went through and how you were building with trust and how you're still, you know, positive uh, going through this and adding more amazing people to your team. So, uh, like I said, hopefully next fall in France, let's do this live. And uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll bring you. I'll, uh, I'll do a tour of uh, the good restaurant I have in Paris yes. after the the summit, and we'll we'll we can do that. Uh, we can finish that talk. No, happy to do the Cledor in Paris with you, Anna. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's always a pleasure to take a bit of time to look back. And it's always easy with good question. Thank you. Thank you for the feedback and take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.